Thank you, Adam. <clears throat> While you're being seated, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 3. And uh, Philippians 3 is where we've been for a few weeks now, moving through the, this, uh, the series in the book of Philippians. This is the 10th message in that series. Had hoped to get through chapter 3 before we get to the holidays. That's probably not going to happen. I don't want to just rush through for the sake of trying to hit a calendar spot. But today, uh, we're going to move fairly deeply into chapter 3, continuing this series. It's been just an awesome run through the book of Philippians, just a phenomenal book of Scripture. So Philippians chapter 3. Back in 1981, a fellow by the name of Carl McClun uh, began what he had hoped would be the adventure of a lifetime. He had moved to the Anchorage, Alaska area about 11 years earlier, and uh, he had actually spent time kind of up in the general area where he was about to be beginning in March of 1981. He had set out during that month um, to ultimately shoot photography. Uh, He had 500 rolls of film 1,400 pounds of provision, uh, two rifles and a shotgun with him when he was essentially began kind of his five-month journey out into literally the wilderness, uh, 225 miles northeast of Fairbanks, Alaska, up kind of near the Brooks Range, a very remote area, literally the wilderness. He arranged for a bush pilot to fly him up to that area and to drop him down and um, uh, to where he would spend those five months shooting photography, and, uh, and then hopefully before winter got bad, which comes very early up in that area, he would make his return trip back. Well, it was during that time that he did exactly as he had planned. He lived off the sustenance. I mean, 1,400 pounds of provision tends to last. You don't really need a, a rifle or a shotgun much to kill game whenever you've got that much food available. And so he began to shoot uh, uh, images through his uh, camera. Again, this is 1981, so a little bit different than we shoot images today in a lot of ways. And so he began to kind of play out the plan. And uh, in early August, the time when he expected to leave, he realized that no plane showed up. And it was there that what dawned on him was the first of two mistakes that would prove to be fatal for Carl McCunn. One was that in the, maybe the, just the the haste of everything, maybe it was his short-sightedness, maybe he just figured he would handle it sometime down the road. He realized in early August when a plane never came to pick him up that he had never even arranged a pickup to begin with. In fact, he remembered having a conversation, we know this from his journal that would be found later, that he remembered the conversation when the bush pilot dropped him off that he was probably not going to be available that time in early August. And for whatever reason, Carl never made an an alternate arrangement, and that would be that decision that would prove fatal for him. But there was a second decision that he made that was an oversight as well that we, many would say would prove fatal. And, and that came towards the end of August. At this point, his provisions had run out. He had begun to hunt game, which was becoming more and more scarce as the weather grew worse. And, uh, and he was very much in dire straits. And it was at the end of August, kind of late August, that a, uh, an Alaska State Patrol plane flew over his campsite area. And he saw the plane, and he took his, uh, his sleeping bag out, and he began to just sort of nonchalantly wave at the plane. I guess he figured, there's no way I can be missed here. And, and, he, and he waved at the plane, and, and as he did, he saw the plane kind of circle, and, and he, he just nonchalantly walked back to his campsite to begin breaking down his site for the pickup. And, uh, and as he went, he, he actually even recorded in his journal, he said as he went, he was just sort of, he was elated because this came out of nowhere, and he, and, and he remembered giving just kind of a fist pump, like, yeah, just a celebratory fist pump. And he went back to break down camp. But later that day, the plane never came. The next day, the plane never came. The second day, the plane never came. And according to his journal that he kept, his diary, he, uh, he recorded 
that it was after the realization that the plane wasn't coming back that he looked at the back of his hunter registration card and he realized the dire mistake he had made. The mistake was that whenever a plane such as that would fly over for rescue, the uh, SOS signal was two hands overhead. Instead, however, he had mistakenly, without even realizing it in his celebration fist pump, he gave the signal with one hand raised that all was okay. Of course, his body was found a number of months later in that remote area with a 100-page diary as well. And you can break down all the reasons that he perhaps lost his life there. It wasn't that he had never been there before. He had spent time in the wilderness in the past. I think you can only boil it down in saying that at the end of the day that he had fumbled his rescue. He didn't set one up, and when it came, he missed it because he wasn't prepared. You know, for every single one of us in this room, we are all equally in need of rescue, spiritually speaking. And when we begin to think on a spiritual level now, not necessarily life in the wild, but just for us spiritually, every single one of us in this room today are in need of being rescued spiritually. And the reason for that is because the Bible makes it very clear. We've seen it wrapped up in what we've celebrated in the Lord's Supper. We've seen it demonstrated in the three baptisms, and we see it in today's passage that we need rescue because of our own sin. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear in in the Gospels, in the words that he spoke. In in Old Testament and New Testament alike, we see that it's our sin that separates us from God. And one of the outflows of that sin is that when we live in our lives in rebellion against God, when we disobey him, when we don't pursue him in his heart, whenever we we, we, uh, embrace sin in our lives, there comes a separation from him and there comes a brokenness in our lives on the inside. To the point to where we're alienated from him. We don't have a relationship with him until that sin issue is ultimately dealt with. And we see the effects of sin all the time. We, we had about 15 or 20 of us down in Ellis Square yesterday as part of the prayer in the square uh, um, emphasis. We, there were uh, 22 squares downtown in Savannah, all 22 filled by area churches in our city, praying for our city, praying for revival, praying for uh, salvation for those who don't know Christ. And I tell you, when I was in Ellis Square for that hour, along with other people in our church just sort of scattered throughout the square, I was reminded of and I was struck by the level of lostness in our city, right there before our very eyes. And when you're there for the purpose of praying, you know, you're, you're, the blinders are kind of stripped away a little bit. You, you sort of see through a different lens. And I was struck by the level of lostness that's in our city. And you can see it as well. You can sit on your front porch. You can step outside your workplace. You, you, you can see the lostness, right, that is all around us. That lostness that applies to every single person in humanity, right, who lives in this world. Every single one of us here. And that lostness has a remedy. It has a rescue. There is a need for rescue that God offers to us ultimately through Jesus. But here's the issue. A lot of times, so many people outside the walls of the church, and listen, inside the walls of the church, fumble that rescue. God sent Jesus as our rescue. He came and he died and he rose so that he could forgive all of our sin. He could wipe that debt clean, right? He could take away the, uh, the alienation between us and God. He literally could, could, could give us, restore to us that relationship with God. Again, Jesus can do that because he is God and he came and he died as man, right? He can do all of that. And yet what often happens is, is that people take the simple message of the gospel and fumble it all the time. And we try to add things to it. Like we looked at last Sunday and we try to say things like, you know what? I I need to get right with God. I think I just need to start going to church. 
And going to church is a great thing. I mean, I don't know if many pastors are going to discourage that. It's a great step. But going to church isn't going to save anybody. It's not going to take away that sin debt in our lives. Being baptized, taking Lord's Supper, doing good deeds. Sometimes people will mistakenly believe, you know what, i got to get some things cleaned up in my life. And when I get some things cleaned up in my life... There's this mistaken belief that, well, then God's going to have something to do with me. Then he will welcome me. Then I'll have a place in heaven as long as I can just sort of outdistance the other guy who's not living as good as I am. And the thing is, it doesn't work that way. When we believe that, we're fumbling the rescue that God offers to us. And so last Sunday in Philippians chapter 3, the first three verses, we began to kind of move into that territory of what salvation truly is, that it's not based on what we do. It's based ultimately on what Jesus has done. And we remember the words that Paul has written elsewhere in the New Testament when he says the same exact thing in other books of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, for example, take a look at it on the screen here. Paul would write to the church in Ephesus. He would say, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone could boast, right? We're not made right with God by anything we can do. We're not made right with God by our good works, by our good deeds. Paul says it's by grace, it's by grace through faith specifically in the person of Jesus. It is a free gift. And so he's going to begin now in chapter 3 looking at his own life as, an, as exhibit A. And he's going to say, hey, there was a time in my life, Paul is going to say this, where back in my life, I could look at the, the back stages of my life, the earlier stages, and I felt like I was so right with God. I felt like there were very few that were like me, right, Paul could say, and, and yet I realized back then I was fumbling the rescue. None of those things would result in giving me a relationship with God. But Paul would say, but now that I know Jesus, who is the rescue, everything ultimately has changed for me, Paul would say. And so let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to begin reading in chapter 3. And I want us to start, I tell you what, let's start in verse 4. And uh, it's going to be mid-sentence, but I think you'll understand the flow. And I'm going to read all the way down through verse 11. And then we're going to move through a little, a little more slowly <coughs> and, um, and begin to break it down as we go, make a couple of applications at the end. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Paul is speaking about how we're ultimately made right through a relationship with Jesus. We don't place confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, he says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, will I far more. Verse 5, he says, speaking of himself, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ." that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, that's a long passage of Scripture, and if I'm not mistaken, verse 7 through verse 11 is all one sentence, right? I'm sure you English and grammar teachers love that. You know, one long sentence. There's a lot there, so we're going to move through a little more slowly. 
and break it down to some degree and see the implications for it in our lives. Paul is speaking specifically regarding life, eternal life that only comes through relationship with Jesus. So I was having uh, breakfast earlier this week with a pastor friend of mine who pastors in another state, and he was sharing with me a story of a, uh, of a visit he had made to a nursing home one day. It's either a nursing home or a medical facility, I can't remember. And it was one of those where the room was not a private room, it was a shared room. So you had, you know, A, bed A, and then bed B. And so he went in to make the, vi- the visit to the person that he was visiting. And, uh, and as he made the visit, he uh, undoubtedly kind of entered into a conversation with the person in the other bed because you're right there. You're talking to both people, right, for the most part. And they began to talk about salvation. And he said something to me I'd never literally heard happening to anyone before, but he he said that as he talked with this other uh, woman in the room, they began to talk about salvation, and uh, she made the comment to him, she said, well, I'm a birthright Christian. (laughs) And he asked me if I'd ever heard that term. I said, I've never heard that terminology before. I've never heard that phrase. And he said he'd never had either. So he began to ask her, well, I'm not sure what that is. What exactly is a birthright Christian? And the, the short of the story was basically that because her mom and dad were Christians and her belief system, she had the belief that since her mom and dad were in relationship with Christ, then that automatically, like a birthright, gave her a relationship with God as well. And so she termed herself literally a birthright Christian. The only problem with that is, is that there's no mention of that anywhere in the Bible, that salvation works that way, right? It is a, it is a fumbling of the rescue. It's a misunderstanding of how our rescue, of how salvation works. John chapter 1 verse 12 tells us, right, that, that it says, as many as received, believed in him, and received him, they were given the right to become children of God. There's never mention in the Bible of God having grandkids. It's always we're either a child of God or we're not, right? And, and so we want to understand what salvation is. Jesus would deal with that same thing in John chapter 8. He would be talking with a group of Pharisees, a group of Jewish leaders, I believe it was. And in the course of that conversation, he was telling them how he had been sent by the Father. He was telling them that if they didn't believe in him, they were going to die in their sins. These are bold statements for Jesus to make to these Jewish leaders. Look at what their response was. In John chapter 8, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Listen to their response. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus is telling them, you've got to come to the Father through me, right? You are not free. You've got to come through me. And their response is, listen, I don't, we don't know who you are, but undoubtedly, you don't know who we are. Have you ever heard of Abraham? Maybe they started singing, Father Abraham. I don't know if it was long, around 2,000 years ago. But they, they, brought, they brought him up. They pulled him into the conversation. We're Abraham's descendants. We're fine, right? We're okay with God. Who are you to talk about us being enslaved? Who are you to talk about us needing freedom and salvation? Who are you to talk to us about uh, ultimately dying in our sins unless we believe in you? We've got all this buttoned up, nailed down, and locked up tight because we're part of Abraham's descendants. And it's the fumbling of the rescue. It's this mistaken idea that says, you know what? I'm fine with God as I am. 
Unless we begin to think, how does this apply to us, man? Because I don't don't know how this applies to us 2,000 years later. Listen, there's a lot of fumbling of the gospel that goes on today. A lot of people that fumble the rescue because largely they think that they're fine with God. Their good deeds are enough. They're, they're, um, They're earning his blessing. They're earning his favor. They're earning eternal life. And they have no need of a savior to come and rescue them in a way that requires their surrender. It's a lot of this, me and God are tight. Not a lot of this, come and rescue me. I surrender all, right? And so Paul begins to recount, and he goes back through his own heritage, his pedigree, his resume. He's going to list, beginning in verse 5 and in verse 6, seven different aspects of his life that he once felt made him right with God. The first three of these largely were his by his birth. One was immediately following his birth, eight days later. But then the last four are things that he had attained or that he had accomplished. So he says in verse 5, Paul says, he was circumcised the eighth day. That's a reference to the Jewish belief, the rite of circumcision that put a person into a covenant relationship with God. Paul said, that was me. I followed all the requirements. He says next that he was of the nation of Israel. The, the reference there seems to be that he is making the comment that I was not sort of grafted in. You know, I was not converted into Judaism. I was a Jew by birth by heritage. My mother, my father, uh, before me, uh, the Jewish heritage, Paul would say, is a part of my heritage. I am a Jew, ultimately, by birth. He would then say, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin is interesting because when you look back at Old Testament history, the first king that Israel had, King Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. When you read the story of, uh, uh, of Mordecai and Esther, Mordecai was of the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, when the whole land of Israel was apportioned amongst the 12 tribes, the city of Jerusalem fell to, that's right, the tribe of Benjamin. It, it was like one of the most noble of all the tribes of Israel. Paul would say, this was the tribe that I came out of. All three of these things, Paul would say, these were mine by birth, right? I was born into this. If anybody had a fast track, right, the fast pass to skip the rest of the ride and go straight to the front of the line to be right with God, then these three things would have been it. But Paul goes on, and it's almost as if he says, and if that's not enough, he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, some believe that meant that he had the ability to speak the Aramaic language. Uh, Others perhaps would say that it was just kind of his way of putting himself kind of at the top of the heap as a as in regards to his Jewish heritage, he would say, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were, um, they, they were the religious group that had the greatest influence in Judaism in the first century. Paul would say, I was one of those. He would go on to say, he was, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was so zealous to protect and to guard um, the Jewish faith that he persecuted the church that one day in the past he saw as a threat to it. And then he would say, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. He's not saying I was perfect, but he was saying I, I adhered to the law of Moses, to the Mosaic law. Paul, Paul's saying, here's my resume. You know, he holds it out there. This was my resume back in the day. And, and, and he's, he's laying out this argument that if I could be right with God based on my pedigree and on my accomplishments, I of all people, Paul was saying here, would have been right with him, but I wasn't. Look at what he says now in verse 7. Looking back after having trusted Jesus in verse 7, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, speaking of this list and everything else as well, whatever things were gained to me, he says, those things I have counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. Now, Paul is not devaluing his Jewish heritage. He loved his Jewish heritage. He loved the Jewish people. He made the comment in the New Testament that he would give up himself if it meant the salvation of the Jewish people. But he's saying in comparison to, right, whatever was gained to him, he's counted now as loss. He's considered as loss for the sake of Jesus. Everything about his perspective has changed now as a result of his relationship with Christ. And there's a principle there that I want us to understand, that I really want us to grasp. And if writing it down helps you, then jot it down. But there's a principle, and this is it. And again, I hope you'll jot it down. That we are not partners with God in our salvation, right? We're not partners with him in our salvation, but rather we're dependents upon God for his salvation, you may think, I don't understand, that sounds like much the same thing. No, there's a nuance there, right? Think about I'm okay versus I surrender, right? For a lot of people, the mistaken understanding is I've got to partner with God in order to be saved. I've got to partner with God in order to have the hope of heaven. In other words, I've got to take my good deeds and I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and in my strength, the best I can, I've got to live a life that's worthy of God saving me, and then he and I are going to partner together in this thing, and I'm going to be saved as a result, right? That's not the picture of salvation. The picture is not that we're partners with God in, in our salvation. The picture is I surrender all. I'm fully dependent upon God for his salvation that I need him to, to, uh, to impart into my life, right? Two very, very different things. Two very different things. It's not I'm coming up from my bootstraps. It is welfare, right? And that might make you uncomfortable to hear that, but on a spiritual level, in a spiritual sense, what we need and where we stand in need of, what we stand in need of as, as people in God's sight who have sinned, who have blown it, and he's perfect and holy. If we need a relationship with him, if we want that relationship, we don't need bootstraps. We need welfare because we are bankrupt. <clears throat> We've got nothing to bring to the table We've got nothing we can add to the mix to say, God, would you just consider this little, you know, goodness in my life and, and somehow partner that with what Jesus did and save me? No, we don't. It, it's, it's not any of that. It, it's welfare. We have nothing, God. I can't bring anything to the table. Would you have grace and mercy on me through Jesus and give me forgiveness in a relationship with you? I heard Keith Smith one time. Uh, uh, many of us know him here. And uh, I remember Keith saying one time, you know, people a lot of times will say that Christianity is a crutch. And I love how he verbalized this. He said, Christianity is not a crutch, man. Christianity is a stretcher. I don't need a crutch. Right? We don't need a crutch to somehow like hobble our way through life until we can get to heaven. Oh, Jesus, I got most of it pulled together. I just need a little bit of a crutch. Would you sort of be my crutch to lean on and, and help me to get into heaven? It's not that. It's, it, we don't need a crutch. We need a stretcher to usher us into the presence of God, right? That's what we need. And his grace and his mercy and his relationship is available, but it's not to those who say, I got this, will you help me? It's to those who say, I surrender, will you take over? And Paul is saying, back in the day, man, I had the list, I had the resume. He's like, trust me in this. I had it all put together, buttoned down, locked up, and that was not enough to make me right with God. Verse 8, he's looking back again. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I think the word rubbish is a nice English word. 
Paul says there's a surpassing value in, in, in my estimation. I count everything else to be lost in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. By the way, what he calls rubbish there in the Greek language could actually be a little better translated as excrement, as waste. That's what the Greek word could be translated as. And Paul says there's no comparison. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. I was in the highest ranking religious system in, in all of Judaism. Paul would say elsewhere in Galatians, I believe, I was advancing even beyond people my own age. He had the best rabbi, the most noted rabbi, a man by the name of Gamaliel. He had everything there. And he says, but now that I know Jesus and his grace and his, and his hope and his joy and his love and his purpose and his forgiveness and his life, now that I know him and all that comes with it, he says, all that other stuff in the, in, in, in the, in the rearview mirror is like just garbage, just like waste waste in comparison to what I have in him. Paul is being incredibly specific. He says in verse 9, he says, this is his desire, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The picture here, this is a great word picture. It's as though Paul is saying, when I stand before God one day, I don't want to stand there with a garment, with a cloak, right, with a, with a coat of my own righteousness, hoping it's going to be good enough, because it's not going to be good enough. But Paul says that I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. I don't be standing there clothed my own righteousness that comes from living a good life, adhering to the law, but I want to be clothed with the righteousness that comes from God on the, faith, on, on the basis of faith in Jesus. I don't want my righteousness to be my own because it's insufficient. I want my righteousness to be when God takes the, the cloak and the garment and the jacket and the coat of his righteousness of Jesus and, and he puts it on my life and, and, he, and he imputes that righteousness to me. That's the fancy term. In other words, he credits it to my account. That's what I want to be wearing when I stand before God one day and the determination is whether I'm getting in or not. Because my righteousness isn't going to be good enough, no matter how much good I've done. I want to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that in him, God the Son, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what he's talking about. (laughs) And here's the cool thing, man. I can look back over my life. I'm like 38 years old now. That's a lie. (laughs) I can look back over my life and that lie, right? I can look back and I can see so much that would, be make, that would make me undeserving of heaven, undeserving of God's grace, undeserving of his mercy, undeserving of a relationship with him. And yet none of that stuff's going to be at the throne when I step up because the only garment I'm wearing is the righteousness of Jesus that he put on my behalf When I, as a little kid, said, Jesus, much as what we saw demonstrated up here reflected, when I said, Jesus, would you forgive and take over? And he said, I will, and here's my righteousness on your account. Paul says, as he finishes out this this passage, verse 10, verse 11, he says, and here's what I want, I want to know him. Verse 9, he says, I want to be found in him. Verse 10, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death, right? I want less of me, more of him, verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want to be found in him. You know, the 
The simple picture that we started with this morning was of a man in the wilderness who fumbled his rescue. Sadly, what often happens in a spiritual sense is that in places just like this and in worlds just like this, people hear the simple message of the gospel that's so simple that even a small child can understand it and respond to it in faith. And they take that simple message that is so simple it can be visualized, symbolized by a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. And yet there are people who take that simple message of the gospel of what it means to be saved and they fumble it all the time. When in reality it's not a matter of, God, I'm okay, but if you would just kind of be a crutch to help me through. But rather it's, God, I'm a sinner and I don't deserve nothing. Would you forgive me, Jesus, and take over? Maybe for some of you today even, you fumbled that rescue. And the simple invitation that he's given to you this morning is an invitation to give up and to quit trying and to say, Lord Jesus, I believe you're God and that you died and rose. Would you forgive my sin, all of it, and wash it away and be my Savior and my Lord, and he'll do it. And if you've already done that, Maybe for you, the whole impetus of the Christian life has now become you're trying to jump through hoops that your obedience, you hope, will earn a little more favor, a little more love, a little more blessing. Listen, it doesn't work that way. Nothing you'll ever do will make him love you anymore. But what he wants is for us not to jump through hoops, but just to walk with him in relationship and obedience so that we can enjoy him. Because when we do this, when we get this, listen, what we learn is we've got joy unlike anybody else because we've got a relationship with the God of grace. And what we also find is no matter what we give up or seemingly lose, hey, listen, we gain infinitely more that comes through Jesus. So I don't know what you got to do today to apply this. Maybe you need to call on him for the first time. Jesus, would you save me? Or maybe what the decision is for you is just to walk with him in grace, right, and enjoy him. Don't lower the bar, but walk with him and enjoy him for who he is. Let's pray. Lord, such a powerful passage of Scripture, one long sentence, most of it, and yet when we begin to really break it down and move through it, what we see is a man named Paul who had a resume that not a one of us in this room probably have spiritually. Lord, he had certain areas of his life that would seemingly make him right with you, just that he was born into, others that he had accomplished. And yet, Lord, what he himself would say is that none of those things were valuable when it came to being right with you, that he needed a relationship with Jesus, his Savior. He needed a rescue, and he had fumbled it for a long time. But the day came when he saw Jesus for who he was, and he turned from his sin, and he trusted Christ alone. And what he found was a salvation that he would even give his life to just spread the message about. So, God, I pray that no one in this room fumbles their rescue, God. I pray that we don't mistakenly think that we're good enough as we are, that surely you're going to have a relationship with us and and, and allow us uh, eternity in heaven because we're such good people. Lord, let us not mistakenly believe that. But God, may we ultimately see the message of the gospel that when we come to you through Jesus, when we invite Christ to forgive us and to save us, to be our Savior, our Lord, to take over our lives, God, what happens is, is that you impart unto us, you, you, you put within us the righteousness of Jesus. You make us to be your children. Lord, you call us saints. 
Lord, you give us titles we don't even deserve. And, and it's, Lord, it's not that we go through the rest of our lives just feeling, well, I'm just a filthy sinner. Lord, no, you, you completely transform us. God, our lives are of great value to the point to where you do call us, not to partner with you in your salvation, because only you can save, but to partner with you in your work in this world as we walk with you. And so, God, may we be found in you. May we long for you more and more every day to grow in our faith and knowledge of you and to be used by you in this world that is so lost and that needs to see you on display. Use us, God, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we ask.